This is the Bethany Podcast Network, which is part of the ministry at Bethany Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. And now, today's message. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, you are indeed worthy of our praise. Father, you are worthy of our song, of our prayers. Father, you are worthy of our everything. And uh, Lord, your name is above every other name. It's why your name is worthy of being blessed and praised. Father, that your name was before all things, your name reigns and is sovereign over all things, and that your name is the one that's only promised, the only promised name that's going to last forever and ever from beginning to end. And so, God, that's why we bless your name, and that's why we worship you. And I pray, Lord, as we dive into your word right now, uh, as we dive deep into your word, as we're trying to uh, grapple and understand even what it is to build a life with a, uh, our lives on your foundation, on your truth, what that even entails and looks like. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears and give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts willing to be transformed and molded into your image. Lord, because above all things, we're not here for information. Our deepest desire is to be transformed, to look more like you. And so, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity. We thank you for your Holy Spirit which is the greatest teacher that ever was or will be. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will, will enlighten our eyes and enlighten our lives, Father, into the truth of who you are and uh, that your Holy Spirit will move in us. Father, let us never be a congregation that thinks that, that while this may be the, one of the more exciting parts of our week, that this is where church happens, but that, Lord, this is where the gathering of your saints happens and your Holy Spirit empowers us to be your body here in walls and outside of the walls, wherever it is that we go. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in this time, rattle the, the cages of our hearts, Father, in ways that we don't even know how to ask. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, you can be seated. Well, the last couple of weeks, there have been some exciting times here at Bethany, haven't they? Just in the last four weeks, Right. Just the last four weeks, we had a, our focus Sunday where we took a look at what's coming up in this new church year. Uh, also kind of unveiling what it is that our spiritual focus is going to be for the year. Uh, we also uh, re, re, renewed our commitment to phase two, which is we're building the parking lot. If you remember, that got slowed down uh, substantially uh, during uh, covid and so we have now revamped or uh, restarted that campaign again where we want to see that parking lot built. So we started talking about that about four weeks ago. In the last four weeks, we've ordained two new deacons. We celebrated the Lord's Supper. Two weeks ago, we baptized nine people and had eight join our congregation and fellowship. And last week, we celebrated our homecoming, which was our 125th homecoming. Right, so we've had a lot happening. It feels like sort of a sprinted marathon uh, over the last couple of weeks. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to pick back up working through our spiritual focus, talking about building foundations. And we're going to continue where we left off. Uh, I had said that there was a lot to Ephesians chapter 2 that we weren't going to be able to touch. And I said we were going to come back to it in a couple of weeks after homecoming. Well, here we are. And so we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2. But one of the things that we said early on in this series, and it's not a series, remember, building foundations is our spiritual focus for this church year. But we said if we want to build a lasting and healthy faith life, then how we build and what we build on, it matters, right? That if it's not built right, it will never last. It's sort of like going to different countries who don't uh, who build and they don't pay attention 
to certain things when they're building. They don't pay attention perhaps to flood zones or fault lines or electrical fire or electrical or fire codes, good safety practices, right? They build a lot of homes or buildings in a concentrated area, but sometimes those are built in less than favorable locations. And sometimes it's they're built with lesser materials or ignoring safety codes or guidelines. Or they're built in ways that don't necessarily pay attention to the foundations necessary for the structures that they're trying to build or the city or the town that they're trying to build. And then eventually what happens is there's an earthquake, flooding, or a tsunami that hits, or a hurricane or a similar natural disaster. And then the next thing we read about is catastrophic loss and catastrophic tragedy where thousands upon thousands of lives are lost. Because cities and simply because of how the cities and the homes were built. Storms are going to come in our lives, right? Storms are going to happen. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But for most people in those affected areas, when this happens, what happens prior to that is they get lulled into a false sense of security, right? Because they'll have wind, they'll have rain, they'll have tremors, and the building still looks beautiful. It still functions. There's no problem. So they think they're safe. That what they've built is successful because the house that they built, it lasted a couple weeks or a couple months or a couple years or even perhaps decades only to have it all come crumbling down with one tragic event. And what's crazy is because we're people, we're like, we're like hindsight's twenty twenty, right? That's how we operate. And so once that happens, it's amazing how everybody becomes an, an expert. Right. Because once that happens and catastrophic loss happens, we start to look backwards and and we go, well, of course, that house or that building or that town collapsed or of course it caught fire and it spread like crazy. Because the reason it collapsed is that those houses had no foundation or they were built with poor materials or they were built with the wrong materials or someone wired the home together with scotch tape and paper clips. Right. And so what happens is we hear the stories of these catastrophic events. And we start to think, well, how in the world did anybody ever think that was a good idea? But what's crazy is we do the very same thing with our faith lives. Because what happens is we fail to see all the ways that we are building our lives or our faith lives in similarly foolish ways. That we're building our faith lives without a foundation and we think we don't need to have a foundation to have a sustaining faith. Or that we think that it's okay to have a faith life or a life that we build with poor or untested materials. In other words, we're not building it on, uh, on Jesus' word. Jesus is the cornerstone that's been tested is what scripture tells us, right? And that we're not building it with tested materials, things that have, been, that have stood the test of time. Instead, we're, we're, def- we're building our whole lives based on whatever truths we want to define. And we say, well, you know what? It's my truth. Or it's their truth, right? And that should be the, that's going to sustain. That's supposed to sustain our lives. We start living in ways that violate God's building codes for our lives and our faiths. And then we're shocked when the storms of life hit and everything collapses in our lives. Everything in our faith, it collapses. And all of a sudden we start to go, you know what? I never believed God existed anyway. Because what happens is far too many people are building their lives of faith uh, incorrectly. And that's why we're starting to see and have been seeing. If you just look at history, it's not that it's new. 
But this is why we start to see in our world political and nationalistic division rising, but you're seeing kingdom focus declining. You're seeing the rates of people getting married going down, but the rates of divorce going up. We're starting to see Western affluence and security and wealth increasing, all the while spiritual health is decreasing. Global Christianity is still the largest faith in the world. Over a third of the people in the world claim to be Christian, yet church fellowship, biblical literacy, and understanding of biblical truth is declining. Right? And you don't, you don't even have to look that far to figure that out. Just look online to people that say they're Christians and how they behave online or how they treat people when things don't go their way in their lives. Right? There are markers in our lives that show what we're building our faith lives from, what we're building our faith lives on, and what we're building our faith lives toward, there are markers in our lives that if we were to look, we might figure out that we may not be as healthy as we think we are. That we may not be as healthy as we think we are, and that our lives really aren't up to code. But are we listening to those warnings? Do we actually know what a healthy, thriving faith life looks like? Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about our spiritual focus, which is building foundations, what it looks like to build a faith and to have a faith that's going to last. Again, how we build and what we build on, it matters if we want to see faith that sustains. We've talked a lot over the last year or two about taking next steps of faith, right? And we sell Matter of fact, we have a display outside with people celebrating some of the next steps of faith that they're taking. Next steps of faith are huge for us. But just as important as taking next steps of faith is building on the right foundation. Because you have to think about it. Even steps have foundations, right? They don't just hover. Steps are anchored into something. And if we're going to step onto something, we need to make sure that what we're building is on the right foundation. We started our series by looking at Luke chapter 6, then we went into Ephesians 2. That's where we're going to pick up Ephesians chapter 2 reading more about Jesus, our foundation, Jesus, our cornerstone. We're going to review a little bit after, and then we're going to continue into some new material. But let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start with verse 19 through 22, and then we're going to backtrack into verse 11 uh, in just a little bit. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. Here's what it says. It says, So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, right? And that foundation would be the, the truth. The apostles, right? They teach the truth of Jesus. So that's why it's built on, their, on the, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It says, with Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Hang on to that last part because we're going to talk about that toward the end. But you're being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Okay, so in this passage, what we've seen is that Jesus is our foundation and he's our cornerstone. Here's what that means. And it, when the Bible says that Jesus is our foundation, what that means is that he is the source of our truth. We don't just agree that God is real. We don't just agree that God is good, right? But if we actually believe that God is who he says he is, then that realization actually demands a response. If God is actually God... How many of those do you have in your life and know in your life? Right? If there's only really, if there's only one God and you know who he is and he is God, then that realization demands a response and you have one of two responses available to you. 
You surrender to him as God and you submit your life to him. You say, God, whatever it is that you want, I want to. Or you can continue to compete with God and say, you know what? I know you're God, but dot, 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 right? I think I should be able to make my own way. I think that I should be able to live like this. I think I should be able to do this. I think this is how this should go, right? So we can compete with God or we can surrender to him. Now, there is a third category, which is, you know what? I don't really know what to do, so I'm not going to really decide. We're just going to kind of float and see how it goes. But here's the thing about indecision. Indecision is still a decision, okay? If you're not deciding to walk with God and to surrender your life toward God, then by default, you're choosing not to. You've already ruled that he's not as God as, as you want him to be in your life. Okay? And so when we say that, when the Bible says that he is our foundation, it means that he is our sole source of truth, and that for us to be his people, we have to build our lives upon the foundation of his word. Okay, so that's what it means that Jesus is the foundation. But he's also our cornerstone. And what the Bible means when it says that Jesus is our cornerstone, like we talked about the last time we talked, it says that the Bible says that Jesus is our cornerstone, meaning that he's the standard and the purpose of our lives. That everything that we're building our lives in and everything we're building our lives from starts with Jesus as the cornerstone. And here's where that roots in. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we said that in ancient uh, construction, typically what would happen is when they were building a house or a building, they would lay the first stone and the first stone was the most essential one. It was called the cornerstone. It was the stone, the metric by which the rest of the building would be measured off of, right? And so every brick, every, uh, every stone that was laid after the cornerstone had to be lined up precisely with the cornerstone or else they would get a couple layers up and realize they built improperly, right? And so the cornerstone was the very first stone that was laid. Jesus is that cornerstone and the Bible says that we are his living stones according to 1 Peter says that we're living stones. And so what happens is if we want to build a life that's thriving and a faith life that lasts, we want to learn how to build our lives on Jesus, who's our foundation. And we want to learn how to align our lives with Christ, who's the cornerstone, right? He becomes now the metric or the standard that we want to measure our lives off of. And as we do that, what ends up happening is we start to see ourselves growing closer to the Lord and we start to see ourselves growing closer to other people. And that's what we just read in verses 19 through 22, where it says that we go, right, as we are, and by the way, for, for those that weren't here two weeks ago, you're, you're probably like, good grief, he is flying. And that's because we covered a lot of this two weeks ago, and I'm moving through it so we can get to the, uh, to the next part of this. But verses 19 through 22, it says that it starts by saying that we are foreigners and we're strangers, and that. We go from being foreigners and strangers to citizens. We go from being citizens to members of his household. We go from being members of the household to living stones that God is bonding together, right? That he's cementing and mortaring together to make up a new type of house, a new dwelling place. And that's going to be the dwelling place of God. And what happens is if you look at that, when I said that we build our lives on Christ and from Christ, I said that our relationships to other people get closer and our relationship to God gets closer. And you see that proximity happen here in this illustration because you foreigners and strangers, right? You're, that's a long distance away. They move in toward being citizens, right? They're not just out in the outskirts now. Now they're part, of, they're part of a nation. They're part of something. But even citizens can be, as Tim Keller once said, citizens can be miles and miles apart. But then you go, as we grow closer towards the Lord, we become members of his household. Members of the household are feet apart, 
right? To the fact that, or to the next step where we become living stones and those stones are mortared together or cemented together that God is building up something neat. It's building up something amazing and that's going to be a new dwelling for the house of the Lord or for the presence of the Lord, which we're going to talk about here in a moment. So what happens is we're growing closer together and we're growing closer to the Lord. But the thing about these images is this. When we go from strangers to citizens to family to living stones, they're not just metaphors. They're also telling us who we are. They're revealing our identity, our peace, and our purpose. Now let's backtrack to verse 11 through 18, and I'll show you what I mean. So 11, verse 11 through 18, Ephesians chapter 2. It says, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. You were called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups one, and he tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from two, resulting in peace. And he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. He came and he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. All right, so if you remember, Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in Ephesus, a city called Ephesus. And Ephesus is a wild city at at its time, right? And at this time that this is written, there's basically two categories of people. You have Jewish people and then everybody else, right? You have Jewish people and then everybody else, but the everybody else aren't called the everybody else. They're called Gentiles, Right, So you have Jewish people and then non-Jewish people, which are Gentiles. And what Paul does in verse 11 through 18, which we just read, is he compares and contrasts the difference between these two groups. And what he's saying is basically everything that the Jewish people had or were from, the Gentiles were the complete opposite. And he's paving the way, by the way, when he's comparing and contrast, he's doing this as a way of trying to help not only the Ephesians, but us today understand that we actually have a special place in the family of God, that we're no longer foreigners and strangers anymore, but that we're actually part of his presence. And so what we see is this compare and contrast. And so in verses 11 through 18, we see that Israel, the Jewish people, they were considered to be close to God. But by contrast, Paul was saying, Gentiles, anybody who's not Jewish, you are considered to be far from God. Jewish people were considered God's special people. They were his holy nation, right? They were citizens. Gentiles, they were foreigners or strangers. They were non-citizens. In other words, they were spiritual nomads, just kind of wandering around trying to figure out what's faith. Jewish people were people of the law, which God gave them to know how to be able to worship and approach him. But Gentiles were outside of God's law. Jewish people were God's covenant people. They were the people of the promise. However, Gentiles were not God's people. Jewish people were the people of the circumcision, which was a sign that God gave as a part of his covenant with them. So they were a people of the circumcision, whereas Gentile people, they were the uncircumcised. 
which was their sign that they were foreigners, right? They were outside of the promise, but God's promises were actually working toward the nations, but that's another sermon for another day. But not only do we see it in verse 11 through 18, do we see these differences, but what Paul also digs into a little bit is that there's also a visible difference in the temple, in how people approached uh, worship in the temple. There were visible differences because, number one, in the temple, only Jewish high priests were allowed to enter into the room at the center of the temple. It was called the holy place. And in the holy place was a little room that was in the back of the holy place. It was called the holy of holies. In the holy of holies, that is where God's presence dwelt. That's where the sacrifice was taken once a year for the sin of people. That's where God would meet with Israel through the Jewish high priest. And he would make sacrifice for the sin of all people who brought an offering to the Lord, right? And so for the Gentiles, their sacrifices had to be handled by Jewish leaders. So even in how they approached worship in the temple, Gentiles were on the outside. But another way we see that is that they were physically on the outside. Because there was even division in the temple because only Jewish people were allowed into the inner courts of what we would call Herod's temple, right? There was different uh, versions of the temple, but the, in Herod's temple, only Gentile, or excuse me, only Jewish people were allowed to be in the inner courts. Gentiles and people who were considered to be spiritually unclean, they had to remain in the outer courts. They had to remain outside. And Jews actually built a wall that was established around the temple to keep outsiders out, right? To let the outsiders know this is your place and this is ours. This is where we belong. This is where you belong. We're the insiders. You're the outsiders. And so Paul gives this wall a name in verse 14. And he says, this is the wall of hostility, which I think we would understand. If we're told that we're outsiders, automatically do you feel welcomed? If you walk in and all of a sudden you're like, hey, I'm here to worship the Lord. And they're like, great. You belong with the outsiders. You're over there. Where's the presence of the Lord? It's all the way in there. Can I go in there? No, you cannot. But if you stand out here, we'll take care of all the stuff for you. Right? And so it creates a disparity between Israel and Gentiles because it symbolized the division between them, defined by their heritage, defined by their race, and defined by their class. But see, there wasn't just a separation from, from that perspective, right? The wall of hostility. There was also another separation between not just, not just Gentiles and God, but Jews and God as well. Because in the Holy of Holies, right? Between the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, in that little room that's in the center, you see that little dotted line that's back there? There was a veil or a curtain that was there. Only one person was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies one time of year, and that was the Jewish high priest, right? Not even the priests could walk in and be like, hey, I have an access pass. I'm allowed in. Right? They couldn't flash credentials or badges and be like, I'm on my way in. Even the high priest couldn't go in two days in a row. He couldn't go in two times in a year. He was allowed once. Right, And so this curtain, this veil represented a, a separation between God's presence and people. That separation happened because of sin. And that when sin separated us, that we were going to need a mediator. We were going to need somebody to go back to God on our behalf. And that curtain was kind of a temporary placeholder. And the high priest was a temporary placeholder because eventually 
the one who was going to escort us back into the presence of God wasn't going to be a high priest, but it was going to be Jesus himself. Right. And that Jesus was going to usher people back into the presence of God. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he did for people what they could never do for themselves. He died perfect. He fulfilled the law, which, by the way, even the Jews couldn't keep. Right. And so that's why that wall of hostility is kind of funny that they would keep it up because they're like, we're the more special people. And there was probably some more faithful Gentiles in the outer courts than there were faithful Jewish people on the inner courts. But the, the point of the matter is it didn't matter who was more faithful. None of them were perfect. And every one of them needed a savior and every one of them needed rescue. And so Jesus died on the cross and he fulfilled for people what we couldn't fulfill for ourselves. And in doing so, he tears down the curtain and the wall. When he died on the cross, he tears down the wall of hostility and he tears down the curtain that stood between the holy place and the holy of holies. The curtain, matter of fact, when Jesus died on the cross, it's actually one of the exciting, one of the, there's a lot of exciting parts when Jesus dies on the cross, things that are happening all around him. But one of the exciting things that happens when Jesus dies is that the ground begins to quake and shake, right? Things, and, and when the ground starts to quake and shake, the curtain, this very thick curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, that curtain tore in half, right? It was Jesus who was tearing that curtain saying, listen, there's not going to be separation between the Father and you anymore. I am paving the way and I am the one taking you into the holy place that only one person could go one time a year. You are allowed into the presence of the Almighty by my work. So Jesus tears down the curtain that kept people at a distance because of their sin. But not only that, he tore down the wall that separated Jewish people from Gentiles based on their heritage and their culture, their class, their race and their worship. And what Jesus did in tearing down the wall of hostility is he made one new people. One new people, which means that as our cornerstone, Jesus is not just the standard that we're aligning our lives with anymore. Right? It, he definitely is the standard we're aligning our lives with. Let me make sure I say that clearly. He's not just the standard we're aligning our lives with. He's also the one that joins people together. He's the reconciling stone or the joining together stone. He's the one that's joining and making two things, two separate things, one. And that's why verses 14 and 15, it tells us that because of that, Jesus is our peace, right? That he is where we find peace. The thing about peace in the Bible, a lot of times when we say, well, there's peace, we, we automatically think, well, that means there's no conflict. And that's not really what peace is, especially biblically. From a biblical perspective, whenever the Bible utilizes the word peace, it's not to represent necessarily the absence of conflict, but the presence of God. That where there is conflict, God shows up and he brings peace, that he brings wholeness, that there's a gap between all people. Think about the Christmas message with Luke. My favorite part of the whole nativity is the angels before the shepherds. I love that. The song that they sing, right? The praises that they praise and they... They announced that Jesus has come to bring peace. Well, it was a peaceful night already, right? It wasn't like a lot of conflict. There wasn't like, like a WWE throwdown between the shepherds in the field, rock hitting and throwing each other around, sheep hitting heads, right? It was a, it was a peaceful night. The world was in conflict. There was order from a government perspective. There was order. Did the Jewish people love the order? They didn't. 
But was there order? There was. When Jesus came to bring peace and the announcement of peace came, it was because there was a hole in the relationship between people and God. There was a gap, a chasm, if you will. How big is a chasm? I don't know. But the only time we use it is to talk about the fact that it's really big. Right? There was a chasm between people and God. And the angels came to announce that hope is coming, peace is come. And the reason that he has come is because he's going to unite people back to their creator. That he is our peace. In the Old Testament, uh, there's times that the word uh, peace, which is in the Hebrew shalom, there are times that that word was actually used not to talk about like peace, like warfare or whatever, but like, hey, there's a hole in the wall. We need to fix that. And they were like, let's make the wall whole again. So let's shalom that wall. Let's make it complete. So peace actually represents completeness or wholeness, right? It's the bridging of the gap. And Jesus becomes our peace because where there was once hostility, he bridges the gap between people who weren't reconcilable at one point. Because of Jesus, we are reconciled. And he takes these two separate walls. And this is one of the most beautiful parts of this this metaphor, this analogy that Paul is telling is that you basically have a wall of Gentiles and you have a wall of Israel. Like it's it's as, as if they're a wall and they're independent of one another. And between them, there was originally a division wall. And then Jesus, our cornerstone comes in and he brings together two separate walls that had different purposes. And he makes them one complete wall, one complete structure, one whole unit. He reconciles them together. And then after that, he says, listen, you guys are going to be the walls of a new temple. You guys are going to be the walls of a new house. And that those that were Jewish and those that were not, that includes us today, by the way, are going to work together as living stones to be built up by God into a dwelling place for the presence of God to live. That God is going to actually live in us and among us, and that we are actually now the new temple. And the only one that could have made that happen was the joining stone. It was the cornerstone, Jesus, who brings people together who have nothing in common. And that's why even Sundays are so special and so important for us, because it's a visual picture of what God is doing, where he's bringing people together that normally would not hang out together. Sometimes some of us will, some of us won't. Some of us are going to love types of music and some are going to like others and some aren't going to like it at all. And some of us are going to, we're going to love one college and some of us are going to not like state because we're all wise. Um, I just have to go for the biggest crowd, whatever I can. <laughs> but listen, we're, there's a lot of things that create natural divisions in our lives. And every single Sunday, those divisions are laid to rest by Jesus who brings us together and makes us one family. There's a beautiful picture that takes place on Sundays that's, by the way, not possible to be seen watching virtually because we don't get to be a part of that, okay? But now here's another question. If we're now one people, does that mean now that there's only one race, that there's only one heritage, there's only one culture, right? Does our heritage, does our culture, does our history, do those things matter still? Yes, our cultures still matter. Let me give you two reasons why. 
Number one, the reason our culture still matters is because God's the one that gave it to us. God is the one that gave us culture. And by the way, God has worked in all of our histories, regardless of what our background is. God has been working in the background and the history of all of humankind, even when we did our best to mess it all up. God has been working to bring redemption and restoration and reconciliation to people, right? The same work that he's doing right here in America is the same work that he's doing on the, on the plains of Africa. It's the same thing that he's doing uh, in Russia. It's the same thing that he's doing in some of the most remote parts of Burma, right? The work that God is doing here is the same work that he's, been, that he's doing all over the world and has been doing since before any of us were a glimmer in our parents' eyes. God gave us our culture, and he's been working in our histories and our heritages. But here's the second reason why culture and our history and those things matter still. is because the things that make us different, God is going to use to bring him glory in eternity. The things that make us different today are the things that God is going to use to bring him glory in eternity. When you look at Revelation chapter 7, and it says that every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to stand before the throne of God crying out, right? Understand, when we say that, all the, we say that a lot, don't we? It's almost kind of, it's, it's very popular verbiage in the church. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, right? That's why we can say it so quickly because it's like John three sixteen. every tribe, every tongue, every nation. But do you understand what that means when you say that? When you say every tribe, every tongue, every nation, those are different cultures, Those are different uh, heritages. Those are different histories. Those are different ethnicities. Those are different languages that God is bringing together to make one kingdom people. And it's beautiful. But how do you reconcile then our different cultures? How do you go, okay, well, how do you you have and how do you respect and value culture that are different cultures if we're all still one? person, right? Because didn't Jesus tear down the wall of hostility? How does that even work then? Here's what I would say to that. I would say that because Jesus is our cornerstone, our culture, our history, and our heritages, they still help to explain us, but they no longer define us. Jesus does. That in Christ, we become new people. We become a new family. We become a new group, a new nation, a new heritage. Right. And that's why that nation and that flag flies higher than any flag of any nation that is or was or will be. We become one special people because Jesus is a reconciling God. How beautiful is that? See, before Jesus, we were far away and separated from God. We're like spiritual nomads. We were estranged from other people, oftentimes because we choose our own selfish ways. That's what we do. We're good at it. Who knows me better than me? But Jesus came to pay for our sin, to give us a new beginning and a new identity in him. And if we want to build a healthy and thriving life and a lasting faith, we have to build our lives on him because he's the true foundation. He is our cornerstone and he's our perfect standard. That's why we align our lives with his standard. That's why his building code is our building code. He's our new identity. He's our peace, right? He's our completeness. He's where we find wholeness. When everything, when when our lives feel like Swiss cheese and we feel like we have just been eaten up and everything in our lives has been torn up and we feel like we are just a shred of ourselves because of all that we've been through, 
and we say, I'm just never going to have wholeness again. Jesus is our wholeness. He is our completeness. He is our reconciliation. We were the far off ones brought near by Christ. And because of that, Jesus is also our purpose. We actually have something to build toward now. We are called to be peacemakers. We are called to be agents of reconciliation. Second Corinthians chapter five, it says that that is our ministry. Now we have the ministry of reconciliation that we are inviting and pointing people to Jesus, the cornerstone that they might surrender their lives to Jesus, the foundation and build their lives on that foundation. And according to him as their cornerstone. So we are a reconciled people called to do reconciling things. But here's the thing, as amazing as all that sounds, not everyone who says they believe in Jesus will build their lives on Christ. They won't. Not everyone who says they believe in Jesus will build their lives on Christ. Not everyone who says they, who says they believe in Jesus will live their lives with him or align their lives with him. And not everyone who says they believe will be agents of reconciliation. That's why 1 Peter chapter 2, it says that there are going to be builders who reject the cornerstone. There are going to be those builders who look at the standard and they go, you know what? I got a better one. They're going to look at the foundation and go, I can build better. They're going to look at other people in the world and they go, you know what? They deserve it. They don't deserve to be reconciled. I do, but they don't. And the reality is there are far too many Christians. The reason this happens is because there are far too many Christians in our world who love the culture of Christianity more than they love the Christ of Christianity. There are far too many Christians who like the idea of a kingdom, but they have no need for a king. Far too many Christians who love Jesus as their savior, but they don't want him as their Lord. And what's crazy is, and the part that should really shake us to our core is this. Many of those who, who those words that I just said that are on the screen behind me define will sit in a church and shake their head and say, that's right. They don't. Because they automatically think that everything said in the Bible is about somebody else. And whenever they read the Bible and there's something that needs to be fixed, they go, I know somebody who needs to know this. And when somebody, they go to church and they hear a sermon preached, they go, hmm. I really wish so-and-so was here to hear that today. As if that message wasn't delivered by the Holy Spirit to you, for you, to do something with. Our call is to repent. Because the bottom line is all of us needed a Savior. And all of us need a Lord. All of us need a King. And Jesus is that King. And Jesus is that standard for us. And if you're not going to build your life off of him, then don't be surprised when things just keep crumbling and you keep questioning your faith and blaming God every time something goes wrong. The reason is because we're not really building on him to start with. He is our starting point. If you're here today and you feel far away from God, you perhaps feel isolated or alone. I want you to know that God wants to welcome you in. And call you his own. That perhaps you're here today and you feel like a spiritual nomad. That you feel like everything in your world is in shambles or everything in your life is in disarray. He wants you to know that he wants you to find peace and healing in him.
And it starts by putting your faith and trust in him. Maybe you're here today and you've taken a lot of next steps of faith, but you've struggled or avoided doing the deeper work of foundation building. You're not really building on Jesus, but you're taking next steps. You're not really building on Jesus, but you're using perhaps your next steps to step around Jesus instead of toward him. But because we can say, oh, I'm reading my Bible. Look at that. I took a next step. What are you doing with it? Has it called you to repentance? Has it dropped you to your knees? Has it broke your heart? Has it, has it, has it worked in your life to the point where you're starting to dream new God-sized dreams? Checking a box wasn't the point of reading the Bible. Reading the Bible was to know the God of the, of the universe. And maybe you're here because you've been taking those next steps, but you're not necessarily stepping toward him, but you're stepping around him. Or maybe you're here today and you realize you realize that your life has talked a lot about heaven, but caused a lot of hell. Your life has talked a lot about heaven, but your life has caused a lot of hell. And you thought you were living in obedience. Matter of fact, you've been going to church. You shake your head going, yes, I agree with all of that. But there's nothing in our private life that symbolizes that. That represents that. And instead, you say I'm living in obedience, but you're really living in open rebellion with a couple Bible verses to bless your actions. And here's the truth about that. If that's your story, I want you to understand that you have become a stumbling block for other people. And you've become an excuse for other, uh, someone else's excuse to avoid Christ. And your invitation is the same as the Jewish people's at that time, and even the Gentiles, which was to repent. Your invitation is to stop rebuilding walls that Jesus has already torn down. Your invitation is to instead learn how to be a peacemaker and an agent of reconciliation. To learn how to start bringing wholeness and hope to a world that's already divided enough. How does God want to use your life and your story and all that Bible knowledge that you have to bring hope into a world that is desperately looking for hope? And yes, I'm talking to you. Let's pray. God, I, I thank you so much for who you are. And I pray, Lord, that as we see that you are our foundation and that you are our cornerstone, how, desperate we, how desperately we need you in our lives. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't know who you are, that they would know that that first step of faith is toward you. That that first step is saying, Jesus, I have sinned against you. I have been rebelling against you. I have been running from you. Whatever the words are. And I now want to live my life for you and you alone. If there's anyone here who has not put their faith and trust in you, Lord Jesus, I pray that today would be that day. For those of us that have, but we've forgotten the, the, the beauty of what it is to be drawn into your presence by you, that you did all the work for us. We're not there because we earned it. We're not there because we were born in the right country. We are not there because uh, we, we go to the right church. We are not there, Father, because of anything that we have accomplished, that we are welcomed into your presence and we were taken across the dividing wall of hostility and across the curtain by your work and your work alone in our lives. Forgive us if we have turned around once we're across the line and started to rebuild walls that you already tore down. 
teach us how to be to be lovers of the world in a way that we love the world the same way that you do. And that they see the depth of who you are in the way that we engage this world. Help us, Father, to be more honest with our worship, more honest with who we are. And instead of looking around the world going, I know people who could use this message, we look in the mirror and go, but how do I need it first? God, thank you for having compassion on us, even when we don't often have compassion. Thank you for having mercy and grace with us when we forget how to employ that with others. Now teach us how, because we're not really good at it. We don't know how to be good at it. But that's why we have your Holy Spirit. Teach us how to be better agents of reconciliation. And to trust you when everything's shaking around us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening with us today. We hope today's message has been helpful, encouraging, and challenging for you. To learn more about having a relationship with Jesus, or to learn more about our church, go to wearebethany.com.